Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the Wizard of Oz, Hall of Famer Ozzie Smith. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. It's a home run, and the Cardinals have won the game. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a 15-time All-Star. He revolutionized the shortstop position and was inducted into the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 2002. Ladies and gentlemen, the wizard, Ozzie Smith. Ozzie, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, thanks so much for having me, man. You sound so professional. Oh, it, I can fool anybody, man. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's good, man. That's good. I'm uh, glad to be on with you. And, uh, you know, we haven't talked in a while, and so it would be nice catching up. It, yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for coming on. Um, Oz, I was, I was, I, I even prepared for this. I prepared for this. I know a lot about Ozzy Smith. We played uh, <laughs> against each other for a few years. I was coming in. You were, you were wrapping up. Um, but obviously, you know the wizard. Everybody talks about your defense. I was, I was, I was looking through the numbers. You stole five hundred and eighty bags. Now, for you yeah, guys out there yeah. listening, that's that's fifty bags. <laughs> For over ten years, it, and it's over twenty-five bags for twenty years. But um, yeah, talk about talk about that and and uh, how important that was to you. Obviously, a different generation. I, I'd love to see the game get back to that type of baseball, that St. Louis baseball you guys played in the eighties. But uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, here again, it, it, like you say, it's a, it was a totally different time and. I'd like to see it get back to that, too, because, as you know, there's no substitute for speed. And it, uh, it's something that, that, that really doesn't go away. And we certainly had a few guys who could run and, and stuff, so it was part of our attack. It was part of the pressure that we were able to put on, um, on other teams. And, and having that as a consistent it uh, it always kept us in a position to be able to score runs. And I think that what happens today, Brett, is that if they don't hit it out of the ballpark, they have trouble scoring runs. And you've got to be able to generate offense without necessarily hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And we certainly were not a home run hitting team. So we had to rely on that much more. And I was fortunate enough to play on some teams where uh, that was the focal point, you know, uh, putting the ball in play and, and, and keeping pressure on the defense. And, you know, as a defensive player, when you have guys who can run or five or six guys as we had, there was always pressure. You know, you always had to handle the ball cleanly. And if you didn't, it probably presented a problem. You know, it's amazing, too. In today's game, I watch, and and you're right, it's based a lot on the home run. Uh, a, a lot on it, there's a lot of station to station going on it seems like and when right. someone does stand out you know when a, a Trey Turner now of the Dodgers when you see a player like that 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 still steals a lot of bases uh, I watch mm-hmm. the teams that really are good at going first to third it changes the whole dynamic of the game it's almost like wow that's a game changer right there you watch that Tampa Bay team play right now and and they run the bases and they steal bases and it and it it's such a weapon that it I can't believe it's not more utilized. It's not even really taught that much. It's all about uh, hitting the ball out of the ballpark. And I just think there's so many other ways to win. Uh, I love how you talk about putting pressure on the defense. I just remember, you know, 15 years ago, we go into a, a meeting as we all do before each and every series. And those teams that really ran the bases went first to third. Uh, I remember a guy that used to give me fits, Ozzy. Uh, he's a little after, I think, after you retired. His name was Sean Figgins, and he played for the, the Angels. Oh, yeah. And he, and he hit oh, in the yeah. two-hole. He, he always, yeah. You always had to handle the ball cleanly when, when, when one of those guys put the ball in place. So you, were always, you always had to be on your toes. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, I would be infield in. 
and I know he's mm-hmm. going to run right in my face. Now, right. the, the, <laughs> ego, the ego in us as defenders are going, you know, for you, you go, hey, you ain't going to run. I'm Aussie. And I would have that same <laughs> ego at second base. I'm Brett Boone. You ain't going to run in my face. And he would. And he it, put the pressure would, on. Those outfielders, I found, you know, the teams that really ran the bases and, and almost respected the outfield arms to a point where uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't be aggressive at all. I, th- I thought you can you consistently put the pressure on them. They will make a mistake. Yeah, they're good. They're accurate, but they're not that good. And, and I, well, Brett, you know, I don't, don't want to spend you know too much time on it. But yeah, but you know, you know what I find is that when you when, when you have a team of offensive guys, they're probably guys that are standing out there in their defensive position saying, please don't hit the ball to me. <laughs> and yeah. if, if you have guys standing out there saying, please don't hit the ball to me, that's, you're at a, a distinct advantage from an offensive standpoint because now really all you have to do is to make sure that you don't strike out and you keep the ball in play. And if you keep it in play, there's a good chance that something good can happen. So – you know, that was one of the things that we, we always talked about as a team, at, at not striking out, putting the ball in play, not beating yourself. And uh, it worked out for us in the 80s, and I think teams were probably built a lot more for that in the 80s than they are today. All right. You're born in Mobile, Alabama. At the age of six, mm-hmm. uh, you moved to Watts in Los yes, Angeles. That's, that's right where I went to school, USC, Trojans. Watts, right, yeah. right in the outskirts. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to know about uh, Ozzie Smith as a kid. What was your childhood like? Well, you know, here again, uh, I was there for the riots in 65, and uh, I can remember sleeping on the floor, the National Guard set up right across the street. And uh, those were, I mean, they were kind of tumultuous times for us as 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 kids, but you know what? We made it through, and uh, never went a day without having a roof over my head or some food on the table. So, you know, I know I hear a lot of guys talk about how tough it was, and it was tough, but it was tough for everybody. And I think the most important thing was that we were able to get out of it, and uh, I was able to find the thing that I love to do, and I got paid for it, and, you know, life life was great. Big Dodger fan. Uh, used to take the bus to Dodger Stadium, um, and you were a hoopster too. You played hoops. Yeah, I played. What, what, I played basketball. It, Eddie Murray and I played uh, played together in high school, and he'll tell you that you know he was such a good basketball player. <laughs> I taught him everything that he knows. But uh, no, we had a we had a great time in in high school. Uh, Eddie and I, and we played with a guy named Daryl Jackson and Nate Quarles. We grew up at a time where you had uh, people that came from our neighborhood like Chet Lemon and Gary Alexander, um, Daryl Jackson, as I said, and uh, there was a pitcher, uh, God, uh, what was his name, the pitcher for the Pirates. But uh, we, we all grew up at a time when, as kids, we spent a lot of time outside. We played everything uh, from baseball to basketball to – we didn't play as much football, but um, – you had to you had to be able to play to to be able to to hang with the guys and stuff. So you worked hard on your craft and you 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 did the best you could every day and um, you learned how to compete. So you end up going to uh, Cal Poly. You you graduate yes. from Locke High School. You go to Cal Poly uh, on a baseball scholarship. Is hoops over at that point for you? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, here, and I, I tell people this all the time that my road to the big leagues was a little bit different than Eddie's. Uh, Eddie got drafted in 73, right out of high school by the Orioles. And I never got drafted out of high school. So I had to take a different route to the big leagues and, uh, I wanted to stay close to home. So I went to Cal Poly on an athletic scholarship and I was a walk on to the baseball program there. And, uh, as a junior, I was ready to come home because I was a little homesick and things weren't working. I, I didn't feel that things were working out. And uh, just at the time that I was thinking about going back home, the varsity shortstop gets hurt. And I stepped in and um, that was my opportunity. And I never looked back. 
your junior year, you get drafted in the seventh round by the Tigers. You you, you opt to not sign and go back for your senior right. year. And and I was and I was I was reading about it. Your mom always emphasized education. Did that have anything to do with it, or, or did you just want a bigger yeah. bonus? <laughs> well, hey, well, I, a little of both. I wanted a bigger bonus. Uh, I had promised my mom that I was going to get my education. So when they drafted me, I felt if they didn't give me at least ten grand, they offered me eighty five hundred dollars. And this was the same year that they drafted uh, Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, and and Jack Forrest. And uh, I went back to them, and they said it, they didn't have it in the budget. So I went back. I gambled. I went back to school in hopes of getting drafted again my senior year, which I did by the San Diego Padres. And Brett, being the good businessman that I am, I ended up signing for $5,000 and a bus <laughs> ticket to Walla Walla, Washington, where I started my professional career. <laughs> well, so but you got that senior business, year in. Very you got that senior year in. Very good Yes, I'm a very good businessman. <laughs> and, and you, you are, all right, so Oz, you signed in 77. You're not in the minor leagues uh-huh. long because in 78, you're the starting shortstop. Um, yeah, I got, yeah, I went to, uh, I went to instructional league where Alvin Dark was the manager of the Padres at the time. And, um, looking back now, Alvin got, he got uh, fired in spring training. And I can remember going in and sitting down with him just before he left. And he says, look, this is baseball, and it, this happens all the time. He said, I'll never forget this. He said, all you have to do is continue to pick the ball up and throw it across the diamond like you've been doing because you're going to be a great one. And that stuck with me. And uh, I haven't, I didn't get a chance to see Alvin um, anymore after that. But, you know, we corresponded. Uh, a little bit and and stuff, but uh, he was the guy that gave me the opportunity. And uh, fortunate for me, I was in a position to where I, I had prepared myself, and it worked out. You played for a lot of skippers in your career. First skipper, I believe, was Roger Craig. No, the first one was um, Alvin Dark, and then Alvin Roger Dark. took over. Yeah, yeah. Then he, he- took over for uh, Alvin. And then I had uh, Doug Rader for a little bit, and then I had uh, then I got traded. Well, Jerry Coleman actually, Jerry Coleman was the manager in San Diego for a little bit too. He came out of the booth. The Colonel. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. I remember that. I think. Yeah. Did you have Frank Howard too? Yeah, I had Frank Howard too. Yeah, Jerry Coleman, Frank Howard. Um, I think. Uh, Frank came just before Jerry, I think, and uh, and stuff. And his stint was a little small, but Frank was one of the most gentle people you'd ever meet. I called him a gentle giant. The big man. He used to uh, he used to call me over and he said, "Smitty, come here." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, Skip." He said, "You see that scoreboard up there?" He said, "That's where I used to hit him, young man." (laughs) (laughs) While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan. Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Ozzie Smith. It's amazing. Uh, you know, when my grandpa was alive, he he got a chance to play with, 
with and against Frank Howard. He would tell me these stories, uh-huh. and you know how you know how time moves on. The, the stories get bigger yeah. and bigger, bigger but and bigger. The, yes, the beginning of my yes. career, uh, Frank was the first base coach for the Mets, and I'd always uh-huh. look at him from second base, and I go, "That is a big." Big, big man, oh, you know, and I had never man. seen a hitter that big. Well, Richie Sexton came along and, and, you know, kind of matched him, uh, from the, in the height category, but yeah, Gramps tells the stories. I said, he'd say, Brett, he goes, Frank Howard hit a ball that, that if I, uh, I could have, I could have reached it with my glove, but I didn't get it up quick enough and it still went out. of. Quick the- enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he could, he could hit him. He was a nice man. He really was. And, um, you know what? I, I think he was too nice a guy to be a manager. If, if yeah, there possible. are there are guys like that. Yeah, yeah, just super nice and took all he took all responsibility for everything. And you know, uh, it's not always the manager's fault. You know, you got to have guys who go out there and do their job, no matter how good you are as a manager or a coach. You know, guys have got to go out and do their job every day and. Unfortunately, we didn't do our well enough to keep Frank on, but he was always one of my favorites. Something talked about, something you're known for. I had to touch on it. I, I thought about it, but uh, the last game of 78, uh, and I think there's a conversation with Gene Tennis, your catcher in, in San Diego. Is that where the flip started? Final game, Fan Appreciation Day? Yeah, it was a Fan Appreciation Day. And, and let me back up and, and, and tell you the whole story. In spring training, we, we had to run two miles after we finished working out and stuff, and I wasn't big on running long distances, so I, I wasn't going to kill myself running those two miles. And so I, as a young guy, I was at the back of the pack, and, of course, I had Gene Tennis, I had Raleigh Fingers, I had Gaylord Perry, I had Dave Winfield all giving me a hard time about being the young guy being at the back of the pack. And so uh, tumbling was something that I did as a kid. So – to show I'm, I wasn't tired, I did a round-off back handspring, and Gene Tennant had girls that were involved in gymnastics. So he wanted me to show them that during the course of the season, which we weren't able to do. So the last day of the season, which was Fan Appreciation Day, he and the PR guy thought it would be a good idea for me to do it going out to, the, to my position. Well, in San Diego, you know the chicken is the entertainment, and I certainly yeah. didn't want to butt heads with the chicken. So I reluctantly did it, and people liked it so much they asked me to do an opening day the following year, and lo and behold, a trademark was born. And I'll tell you, it's because I I did it a little bit too when I was a kid. I I did gymnastics. Did it get to the point when you got older? Was it like, guys, this backflip's not as easy as it used to be? (laughs) No, as you know, it got lower and lower as the years went on, Brad, and, and stuff, and and finally, you know, people ask me, when was the last time I did it? And I, I did it in 2002 at the age of 41, and it wasn't pretty. I skipped my knee. I messed up a pair of pants, and that was the final flip. I never did another one. And, and you get lightheaded. When you get older, you get lightheaded when you flip. Because, wait a minute. It's oh, yeah. not like it used to be. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, even just jumping on the trampoline now, you get lightheaded, you know, so forget about trying to, trying to turn over. Uh, you know, I had a trampoline and the backyard and I said to myself, you know, Hey, I can still do this, man. I started jumping on that thing. It got so dizzy. I said, Nope, that's the end of that. So we get you're in, you're in San Diego, 1980. Uh, you win your first gold glove. You're going to win. You're going to win that gold glove for the next 13 years. And, and I'll get into it a little bit later. But as you know, uh, Barry Larkin and myself were, were partners in the middle in Cincinnati for uh-huh. fi- five or six years. And he always used to say, man, it's tough taking that glove from Ozzy. When am I going to get one? And I remember he'd always be complaining about that. Uh, 1981. Yeah, uh, oh, go ahead. Those 80s. Um those were years where, you know, I, it, I, I, there wasn't any anything specific. I wanted at one point in time to win myself a gold glove and to win a silver slugger. You know, those were the two goals that I had. And I got on that run in 1980, man, and it just it, – I, I continued to, to, to get better. And as you know, the thing that separates the good from the average and the average from the great is the degree of consistency with which you do your job. And so 
that's what I concentrated on being as consistent as I could possibly be, be every year. And I was consistent enough to where I was, I was uh, awarded the, the, the glove. And it becomes one of those things that after you do it so many times, you, you expect it and people expect it. So it it just, one of those things I got on a roll and it, it it did to stop at until after my 13th. 1981, you make your first all-star game. You're going to go to 15 all-star, which to me, that's, that's unbelievable. Um, And then we get to the 81 season and uh, a lot goes down. I I read about your agent and Ray Kroc and (laughs) Trader Jack's in the mix. Uh, Ends up being a big kind of historic trade. It's you for Gary Templeton. Uh, From what I heard, Gary, Gary was having some problems in St. Louis. Um, Yeah. And it was a kind of the perfect storm. And and both of your kind of careers, you know, take a different, Take on a different turn from then. You become Ozzy Smith, obviously the legendary Cardinal. Take me through that trade and and leaving San Diego and going to St. Louis for what's going to be a long, uh, successful tenure for you. Well, you know, uh, when you get traded for a player the caliber of Gary Templeton, who was probably one of the most talented players to ever don a pair of spikes, there's always that that question about you know who's the best, so forth and so on, and. That's one of the things that I did not want to get caught up in. I, I didn't want to get caught up in being compared to – it's hard not to, but for myself personally, I didn't want to sit, sit there thinking or, or trying to prove that I was as good or better. I just had to be the best Ozzy Smith. And remember what Alvin Dark told me, to just go out there and do what it is that I do. And that's what I concentrated on when I came over here at being the very best Ozzy Smith that I could be. And in doing that, it allowed me to to blossom as a player, as a person, uh, as a teammate, um, because no success comes without uh, – you're, you're only as good as the people that are around you. And so I, I became a part of a team and an organization that was rich in tradition, one that – was going to afford me the opportunity to experience what winning was all about. And uh, I took advantage of that. I, I, here again, I wasn't the greatest offensive player, but my goal was to become the as best uh, offensive players I could be. And, and those were the things that I worked on that allowed me to play for 19 years and play with a degree of consistency that afforded me at the end of it, the opportunity to be considered a Hall of Famer. Support for the Boone Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. From the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BOON. That's promo code BOON at manscaped.com. Dot com. And now back to my interview with Ozzie Smith, 82. Uh, that's the, the big World Series win in St. Louis. I, I still remember that team. And, and we talked about mm-hmm. the speed, the speed factor, probably the epitome of, of the game we were talking about in the open of, you know, the speed doesn't go away. I mean, headed with Vince Coleman and one of my favorites mm-hmm. of all time, Willie McGee, uh, mm-hmm. Keith Ern- Keith Hernandez and and uh, Tommy Herr was your partner in the middle. And the guy I remember, Ozzy, was uh, Lonnie Smith was on that team. That's and right. I, rem- That's right. I remember in 1980 uh, on my dad's Phillies team that won the World yeah. Series, Lonnie Smith was a young player coming up. They called him Skates. And I, and I know, I know right. you know what I'm talking I about. With, but Lonnie, I played with uh, Lonnie coming up in South Angeles as well. He went to Centennial High School. So we all play against each other, and there was a saying that where Lonnie goes, the champagne flows. 
I yeah. don't know if you remember that, but uh, Lonnie was one of those dynamic players. And uh, Lonnie had a good arm, but he had a torn rotator cuff and uh, early on in his career. And I think that hampered his ability to throw. But, boy, could he hit and run. He was fun to watch. Um, granted, had some, some problems there late in his career, but what a great player, man. He was very dynamic and one of the best leadoff hitters I've ever had the opportunity to play with. Skipper, that team's Whitey Herzog. Uh, mm-hmm. Speak a little bit about that. Well, you know, he he was the architect of it, and, and Whitey had worked at every um, every position that, that baseball, you could ever think of in baseball, from the clubhouse guy to the general manager. And when I came here, he was he held two positions, the general manager and the manager. Chip, so there was only one person to answer to. And uh, he put together a team that, that, uh, that fit the ballpark. It was a big, spacious ballpark, as most of the parks were, the National League parks were at that particular time. And, uh, and putting those teams together, he understood that he needed guys who could cover ground. Uh, and I think that we're, to this point, still the only team that had one, two, three, four switch hitters in the lineup. I think the only other team to ever have as many as that or more was the Los Angeles Dodgers. And when you have guys like that and guys stay healthy, um, it presents a real problem for teams. And I think that Whitey uh, has to get the credit for being able to not only assemble uh, people uh, who were good players, but people who were good teammates and creating chemistry because, you know, you have to have the right chemistry to make it all work. And he was able to, to, to do that as, as manager and general manager. That year in the World Series, you beat that, that Milwaukee team, Harvey's wall bangers, they called them. Um, and that leads me a little bit to, to just St. Louis baseball. And, <clears throat> you know, they, they, we talk about the Yankees and the Cubs and, you know, obviously the Boston Red Sox. But St. Louis, mm-hmm. year in and year out, uh, from, the, from the Hall of Fame Museum to the, to the uh, alumni that have been St. Louis Cardinals. It, it, it's, it rivals any, any ball club in, uh, in Major League Baseball and, and that city. And even, you know, my time playing and, and we come into St. Louis, there was something different about St. Louis. It's a special baseball place. And um, that 82 season, obviously unbelievable. Uh, your first World Series, uh, take me through that parade, post and just the state of that city uh, back then in 82? Well, you know, coming in uh, to an organization like this, I think they had finished in 1981. I finished first half. Uh, they won the first half or something, and, and and they came up a little short because of the way that they put the postseason stuff together. But I can remember Whitey telling me that if you come over and play for us, there's no reason that we can't win it all. And uh, that kind of stood out and, and stuff. And uh, when we got, when we finally did make it to the playoffs, just before the playoffs, uh, I think I got a hematoma in my thigh, you know, so Mike Ramsey stepped in and did a great job. And I think here again, it's, it's one of the things that Whitey was good at. He was good at having people who knew that they were not the starters that they were going to be um, guys that filled in for a period of time to keep your head above water. And Mike Ramsey was one of those guys. Uh, I think we had a guy named Steve Braun, uh, Dane Orge. All of these guys were, were extras on the team, but when the frontline guys went down, they were able to step in and, and keep, us, uh, keep us in it. And I can remember the series in Philadelphia where uh, I was listening to it on radio. Uh, I was back at home getting rehabbed and stuff. Uh, where the the season was really kind of on the line and the bases were loaded and he got Mike Schmidt to get into a uh, a double play that ended that uh, that inning. Bruce Suter ended that inning and uh, we were able to go on and, and make it to the World Series. And, of course, the first game of the World Series in 1982, we did beat 11 to nothing, I think it was. And I can remember riding back home with Willie McGee, who was living with me at the time, um, was talking about the fact that, you know, we listen to these scouting reports and stuff. And sometimes as a, 
as a scout, you, 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 you sit and you watch what's happening, but you still got to have a feel for what, what goes on on the field. And, and that's one of the things that we were good at. We were good at, you know, having a feel for what was going on because even if the scouting report says this guy hits it over here, whether or not the pitcher has the ability to pitch to that scouting report comes into play as well. So uh, we had a good feel for that as a team. And so after that first day that we played them, uh, we said, you know what, we're going to do away with this scouting report because everywhere they said play, they hit it somewhere else. So we just went back to our style of play, doing it the way that we knew how to do it and depending on each other. Um, and it, it it worked out. You know, Willie McGee probably had one of the best games in World Series history, uh, hitting two home runs off of Vukovic and then taking a home run away from Gorman Thomas. Um, you know, I think Daryl Porter ended up being the MVP, but in my mind, Willie McGee was really the guy that was the spark for us and, and allowed all of that to happen. Isn't it amazing? It, I love when this subject and, and you just brought it up and, and it boggles my mind when we talk about defense, because as defenders, especially as middle infielders, we're constantly watching the game. We're taking into account the hitter, the count who's on the mound. And it's so important. If I've got Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin, you know, and I, I only played in Atlanta one year, but when I've got guys that can, that can hit a tick, <laughs> on the back of a horse's butt like these yep. guys i i can yep. pick how i defend now if i've got a fourth or fifth starter that that might we might be calling for a fastball away he might miss up and in well then That's i've right. got to i've got to play it differently but but if i know a fastball ways called and greg maddox is on the mound i know at worst he's probably going to miss by an inch or two so i can pretty That's much right. set up how i'm going to defend this player and just to blindly defend in a certain way, I understand tendencies without a doubt. You know, you know those guys that, that have a tendency to roll over certain pitches, and they're a little more predictable. I'm talking about the elite hitters that you're telling me you're going to pitch Tony Gwynn a certain way and you're going to be able to defend him. Well, then, then you're playing on a different field than I am because for years, uh, it's almost like he'd look out at us on defense and, and pick That's where right. he's going to hit this ball. And he's one of the few right. guys I ever thought that. When I played with him, I asked him, I said, Tony, and, and I didn't know the answer I was going to get, Oz, but I said, tell me you, you try to hit it where I'm not. He looked me dead in the eye. I said, Booney, absolutely I do. And I hey, said, well, right. it must, it must right. be nice. You must best. be living he, in it. He was the best. At, I, I tell people that all the time, uh, Brett, that, you know, it, it was very tough defending a guy like that. He's easily the toughest guy to defend because he did have the ability to hit the ball where you weren't. And so what I tried to do is you want a guy like that, you want him thinking. You want to try and make him think. And so I just start moving around. I didn't, I didn't play as uh, a certain way with Tony. I just kind of moved around and, and stuff because I knew that he had the ability to hit it to where I wasn't. So, uh, you know, it was just, it was just freelance with him. Yeah, it, it, it was unbelievable. And I think he's one of the few people I don't, I wouldn't believe most people if they told me that, because I know, and you know how hard it is when you get in that box to just get a good pitch and square it, let alone, I'm going to start right. aiming this ball. You know, this isn't golf, mm -hmm. but, but Tony was one of the rare exceptions. Uh, moving on to 95, a couple big things happen. You go, you go back to the world series. Uh, you meet a, a KC ball club. That's the go crazy that that they keep yeah, replaying, yeah. you know, for years and years. Pretty cool moment for you. But take me through that 85. Take me through the we've had, you know, some guys from the other side. I had George Brett on the program and, and Brett Saberhagen, uh, Mark Gubaza. And they they gave me their version of the Don Dinkager play at first base. But but uh, touch on that a little bit from from the Cardinal side. Yeah, well, you know. I think the only thing that we look when we look back and we regret was that he didn't get any help. He didn't ask for any help at all. He just made the decision on his own. And I, I, I still believe that Whitey probably would not have gotten kicked out if he had just gone to another another umpire and said, "Hey, what did you see?" And if the umpire had said, "I saw the same thing," he probably would have said, "Bullshit." But, but right. it, it, 
shouldn't have gotten kicked out of the ball game. And I think that you look at it now, and there's instant replay and stuff now. But uh, back then, it was uh, it was a play that we've seen it a million times. And of course, the George Order was out because we got a, a real close close up look and a view of uh, of the play itself and, and and stuff. So from that standpoint, that's the only thing that that we wish could have been different. Uh, but that year, 1985 was a year for uh, the Kansas City Royals. It was their year. You know, I think they won 80, I think they only won 88 games or something like that. But they were they were destined uh, to win the World Series that year because we as a team, we'd only lost one game after leading in the eighth inning um, with a lead. And that was that game. Uh, we were We were pretty good and that year, we weren't expected to do much as a team, and that, to me, was probably the team that achieved the most that, that I've ever played on, that overachieved. And, uh, you know, I, we talk, I see George and those guys all the time, and I, and I think that they would tell you that they know that he missed a call and it worked out in their favor and stuff. Uh, but, you know, you got to put those things behind you. We did have a chance if we had made a couple plays, which we did not to give ourselves a chance there again there was a foul ball that I think that was hit between Daryl Porter and uh, Zach Clark near their dugout that we we didn't we didn't make the play and uh, that's what allowed them to go ahead and and uh, give gave them an extra chance and anytime you give an extra a big league team an extra out or two uh, there's a good chance you're going to get beat and we did Go crazy call, one of the most iconic calls in, in baseball history. Uh, you hit it left-handed, which, as you know, you didn't hit mm-hmm. many left-handed. No, uh, no, no. Th- 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 I still watch that, and I think it's cool. And and I wasn't even the one hitting it. I'm going, that that's pretty cool right there. What, <laughs> do, was, what are you thinking running around the bases? I was not, you know, here again, I wasn't a home run hitter, and I knew that. But in 1985, I'd learned to pull the ball and uh, in Bush Stadium. There are only certain places that, you know, as a little guy, you can hit the ball out of the ballpark. Um, you know, I think it was almost 390 to the gaps and stuff. So from about 10 to 15 feet to the foul line on each side was, you know, the place that if you were going to hit it, that's where it was going. I certainly wasn't trying to do that. I was trying to get the ball down in the corner. And they'd always pitch me in and stuff. And uh, he tried to pound me in, and he he missed. He left it out over the plate, and I was able to – he supplied the power. I supplied the technique and, and history was made, but I certainly was not trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark because that's what's not the type of player that I was and stuff. I was trying to get myself in scoring position and, and a magical moment happened. Question for you. One of the greatest defenders in the history of the game. I, I, I want to get your take on it as a, as a, as a player, I'd always, I always took a lot of pride in my defense and mm-hmm. You know, I was a, I was an offensive player, but defense was just as important to me, and it get, kind of gave me a safe haven because you play 162 games; it's so hard, and hitting all the time is so hard, as everybody knows. You're not going to hit all the time, but the defense there was really no excuse for me for that to ever go away. So when I was in one of those slumps or I wasn't seeing the ball good or picking it up and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm four for my last 20 or I'm four for my last 25. It kind of gave me a safe haven. Like until I get this back, there's something I can do to contribute to this game. When I took the field, it's like, you know what? I'm going to take, if you're, if I'm not getting any hits, I'm sure as hell going to take some hits away from you. And it kind of gave me, instead of, you know, what we tended, it gets sulky and, oh, woe is me. And, oh, I'm not hitting very good. It's like, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go beat their ass defensively until I get Uh my swing right. And it gave me, it it gave me a a pep in my step. Like I stink, I'm 0 for 4 again, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn a big double play. I'm going to take a hit away from you try to help my team in any way. And it was something that keeps you going because if you just dwell on the offensive side of baseball f- uh, for 106, I don't know. They're going to have to put me in a straight jacket. I don't know about you, but defense, defense <laughs> oh, yeah. was a safe that's, haven for that's me. That's the way we thought, you know, that's the way we thought, Brett, you know, if I'm, if, if, if they're going to be tough on me on that side of the, uh, 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 that side of the ball, then 
I've got to be doubly tough on the other side. And as, as little guys, you know, you always had to think that way. And I was there because of my, uh, my defense. So uh, if I was struggling offensively, then I had to, uh, had to find it somewhere. And, and that was usually on the other side of the ball and, and working extremely hard to cover whatever mistakes my pitcher may make. And uh, it's one of those things that I think that for all of us, it, it, it's what, it was the way that we were wired, you know, that, hey, they're making it tough on me, so I'm going to make it tough on them. 87, you go back to the World Series. Uh, you lose to that Minnesota ball club. And I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. Fast forward to 96. Uh, that's your final season. You go back to the playoffs that year. You retire after after that season in St. Louis. And um, it, it kind of starts a different chapter for you, a new chapter in your life. And this is really interesting to me. You take over and you do this week in baseball. Take it over for Mel Allen. Give me that experience. How was that for you? Hello, everybody. This is Mel Allen. <laughs> and, uh, and this is Twi- Twib Notes. Uh, you know, that was really special because, you know, back in the day when we were growing up, it was a big we got deal. all our baseball information on Saturdays. Yeah. You know, it was listening to Mel Allen with uh, This Week in Baseball. So I took a lot of pride in that. Um, in doing that show, what they would do is they would send me my script on uh, on Monday night, and then we would tape on Tuesday. And one of the things that they did for me that I think that helped me tremendously was they didn't uh, they didn't allow me. I had to memorize everything. You know, I I couldn't rely on a uh, teleprompter, and that made the show so much more real. Uh, it gave it a real a feeling of of uh, reality, you know. So uh, I took I, I love the show. Um, I don't know. I really, to this day don't know why we're not still doing that. But I love the time that I was able to spend on uh, this week in baseball, and um, it was a, a learning experience for me. Two thousand two, huge year for you. I mean, you're you're getting all the accolades start coming. Uh, St. Louis Hall of Fame, your number, uh, your number gets retired, which is kind of a, a, the next level. Uh, Cooperstown comes calling. Uh, you get inducted into Cooperstown. And what I've talked, I've had a few guys on, on the show, Griffey and Perez and Bench. And we had Steve Carlton on recently. And I said, guys, the, they're my statue guys. Well, Ozzy Smith's got a statue too. That's next level because there's there's not too many people. There's a lot of people that that get into the you know their team's Hall of Fame. A few guys get their number retired. Pretty rare. Uh, Cooperstown, obviously the ultimate in our game of Major League Baseball. But that's one up in it for me. Not too many people have a statue. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, most of the guys that that make it to the Hall of Fame get a statue, and and and. One of the guys that I played with, I, I started with in San Diego, Dave Winfield. Dave, Dave Winfield yeah. is the only, one of the only guys, and we give him a hard time. Uh, he's one of the only guys that doesn't have a statue. I go, come on, Dave. You got <laughs> to get you a statue. Dave, Winfield. Yeah, Dave, Dave has a statue. I said, Dave, you don't have a statue? You should see the look on his face like, no, man, I don't have a statue. I said, you might be the only Hall of Famer that don't have a statue. So, you know, it's nice to be able to, to, to be looked upon as one of those few people that, that you get your number retired, you get a statue. Uh, I don't think that that's what you play for, but if you do your job well enough, it's, it's one of the rewards that comes along with it. And it, it, I think it speaks to the degree of consistency with which you've done your job. That day you get the phone call from Cooperstown and, and probably at this stage of your life, uh, it's kind of expected, you know, you know that you, you have the credentials, you, you know, you're probably going to get the call until you get that call, though. Uh, you know, all your buddies are telling you, family members, you know, we kind of yeah, know uh, from the outside. Uh, uh, yeah. But but yeah. when it's you, it, it it's not real, probably until that phone actually rings and you hear it. Take me through that that's that exactly, Hall of Fame call. That's exactly right, Brad. You know, you always have these people saying, "Man, you're going to the Hall of Fame," and I'm I'm thinking to myself, "Gee, uh, they're talking about 
you know, I put myself in a position to be, at least be talked about, you know, being a Hall of Famer. But until you get that call, and there are a lot of guys that are waiting for that call that never get. And I know people like like that that sat there and the phone never rang. So um, for me, that day was very nerve-wracking. But it was, you know, e- even if I didn't, even if I didn't make it, just being able to say that, you know what, I played well enough to put myself in a position to be considered and, and, and stuff. So when the call did come, it just reinforced the fact that I had, I had done my job to the best of my ability for 19 years. And, I, you know, whatever, however the chips fell, was the, what, was I, what, what were they going to do? I, I had to accept whatever it was. And I felt that I had played well enough to be considered. And that would, have been, that would have been great for me because I know that each and every day that I went out there, I gave it my all. I didn't cheat myself and then not cheating myself. I didn't cheat people who paid their money to see me play every day. 2002, you also, pretty special moment. Uh, Kurt Warner and yourself uh, got to carry the Olympic torch. Special yeah. moment for you? Yeah, that was, uh, that, that was special, you know, because here again, I, I think when I look back over my career, I wish I could have played in a college World Series um, or played on the USA team, which – uh, I didn't get the opportunity, but this was as close as I could get to do something that had to do with the country and, and running the uh, leg of the Olympic, Olympic torch was, was very rewarding and very special because not everybody gets to do that either. So when I look back at my life and my career, there's some very, there's some bright moments and that certainly was one of them. The game today uh, that we watch and I noticed at first just just put my eyeballs on a on a current big league game. A lot of talented players. The physicality, and I'm talking even from thirteen. My last year, thirteen years ago to to present, the athleticism ha- has really the 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 ante's been upped from an athletic standpoint. And but I think when you broke in, and there weren't a lot of the, the the athleticism wasn't even close to what what it is today, and that's why when I when when people ask me about playing against Ozzie Smith, what was he like? I said he kind of reinvented the game, and I said that in my opening. He reinvented the position of shortstop. You brought that off the charts athleticism to a position that you know shortstop to me still it, it the best player on the game the the best player on the field the most talented defender on the field plays shortstops. That's why you know, you don't see anybody being made into a shortstop. <laughs> you see a lot of guys that are shortstops that go to second base, uh, a lot of third basemen that now they're left fielders, but nobody gets made a shortstop. How much do you feel that's true? And, and I know you're not yeah. going to sit there and go, yeah, I'm, I'm the reason shortstop is, but I really think, and, and, and your teammates and your peers, the guys that played against you, uh, we really look at it that way. Like Ozzy kind of was the pioneer of how that athletic shortstop is today. There's a lot more of them now, but you were kind of the original for me, definitely growing up in the era I did. Yeah, Brett, I, I think that here again, it wasn't uh... – wasn't anything that you made a that I made a conscious effort at trying to be. I, I I think that playing shortstop, I had the freedom to be able to play it, and I was given the freedom to play it any way that I felt. Uh, I felt, and uh, there was no restrictions. So, with there being no restrictions, you were able to go out there and play with a, a certain degree of freedom. I hear people sometimes say, "Well, you can't throw off the right foot," and I I say, "Why not?" because a lot of it depended on where the runner was in many cases or who was running. You know, you probably didn't have time to, to, to get in a perfect throwing position. And so I think that that thinking is what allowed me to be able to do some of the things that I did because there were no restrictions to the way I played the position. Playing on turf, that old turf we all used to play on. It was at 
my place in Cincinnati Riverfront, Bush Stadium, of course, Philly, mm-hmm. Montreal. You na- there was a lot of turf. The Astrodome. Um, mm-hmm. How'd you like playing on the turf? I personally, I loved it. It was a fast game. I loved it. Now, yep. now yep. as as I got older, my body didn't like it. But I loved right. the game. It was fast. It was a step and a dive. Uh, usually, unless it hit a seam, you were gonna you you could predict the hop. But it was kind of a fun game. Uh, you know, like I said, as time moves on, your body will start to feel the the uh, the aches and pains from that turf. But it's a the, today's player. They didn't get a chance to play on the turf we played on. No, no, it was a much faster game. I loved it. You know, as long as you weren't a guy that was overweight. Um, you know, weren't you weren't carrying a lot of weight around? Uh, it was a, it was a great thing to play on because it was so much faster. It allowed you to play a little bit deeper, learning the tricks of the trade. I stole being able to bounce the ball over the first base from Davy Concepcion. Um, you know, so it, it, you know you learn those little things as you go along. But it was just uh, it was a fun thing for me because you didn't have to hit the ball as hard. Uh, you know, especially if you had the hole open at first base, I learned to pull the ball in that hole right there and hit the ball sharply. So I was able to get a lot of hits uh, playing on turf, and um, I, I, I truly enjoyed it. I didn't have a weight problem or anything, so uh, it was easier for me as I, I went along. And as you said, the later you got in your career, the more you felt it, but by that time, it was it was almost over anyway. Um. What about what about the new rules in today's game? Sliding right into the bag. Can't take the rep, can't take the fielder out. Brent, what are your thoughts Brent, on that? Come on, come on. It's like <laughs> it's you know, what are we doing here? I, I think personally that we've started we've allowed analytics to take over the game. Analytics doesn't play the game. It doesn't hit, doesn't run any any of that stuff. And there's place for analytics. But you can't allow analytical people to be the ones that are making the rules and the guidelines by which we play this game. And I think that that's the reason that you have a situation now where, you know, you can be in the seventh game of the World Series and I got to give a guy a lane at home plate to beat me. Or I can't touch it. I can't break up the double play at second base. Now, as long as a guy is sliding hard and he can reach the base when he slides and and to me, all you had to do was just reinforce the rules. Apply the rules as they are written. As an umpire, if a guy does not, when he slides, if he can't grab the bag with his hand, it's a double play. And I think that that would have changed everything. So uh, the rules today are they're totally, uh, I think that they've we've gotten away from what real baseball is all about. And I think that's due to the fact that we're allowing people who've never played the game to make the rules of the game. And that, that always, to me, changes the personal aspect of the game. Well, I just look, and you bring up a good, uh, a good point on the catcher's line. I mean, that scoring at home, scoring at home is so easy now. It's like they, they always uh-huh. want to talk about what an unbelievable slide at home. Well, when you have a lane and they can't block lane. you, That's I'll tell you right. what, I'll come up with these big fancy slides too. They're not very tough to do. The t- The tricky part was that catcher that was willing to hang in there and he's 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 protecting his base. Now, how are you going to get in there? Right. Sometimes we got to crush you. Sometimes we, a slick slide will work. But that was a part of the game, the unknown that I loved. And particularly at second base, it kind of bothers me because playing second base, uh, you put yourself in a certain zone. Uh, You know, everybody's ranked. He's the good way. He's elite. But I think what really separated, and this is a personal thing for me, the great second basemen from the average second baseman was in the ninth inning with Kurt Gibson barreling, barreling down on me. Do I turn that big double play? That's a yeah. big time separator. And now anybody can do it. You can bring a third baseman over. He could turn a double play. Shit. Bring it, bring yeah. a first baseman over. He'll turn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be- because and, there's and no fear. You know? Yeah. As a second base, we, we knew as middle infielders that, there was a chance that, you know, the guy was coming to, he's coming to get you. And as long as the guy was doing it, we didn't have a problem with that. 
Um, it was just it was just a hazard that went along with the job, and I've always enjoyed at uh, playing the middle infield and turning a double play because of the improvisational part of it. There were many times where we didn't really know exactly how you were going to be able to turn a double play. Um, you know, so that, that made it fun uh, for me uh, anyway. But nowadays, man, it's, uh, it, you, you can't touch the guy. Uh, it reminds me of football. You know, you can't touch the quarterback. You, you reach for him and and here again, I think that they're allowing people to start making the decisions or making the rules that have never played it. And, and that's, that's what creates the problem. I'll tell you, I used to live for those days, those big double plays. You'd turn that runner's trying mm-hmm. to crush you, and he has no idea how he turned it, how you turned it, right. and, the look on it and the look on his face. <laughs> and you can just face, give him a yeah. right smile as you're running into the dugout like, yep, pretty good, huh? <laughs> that's what I. That's what I live for. I loved it. Yeah, you miss it. You know, the other part is I. I, I love watching a manager go out and argue for his team. You know, a guy that went out there and uh, the guys have been battling and, and and stuff. But now, it's as if there's no emotion in the game. The emotional part of the game's been taken away, and and baseball is not an emotionalist game. If you care about your job and your craft, you know, you're going to get angry. You should get angry in any sport. And now uh, that's been taken away completely. Uh, most influential teammates uh, throughout your career. Could be could be a coach or manager, too. Yeah, it's, Give me I, a mean, few. I had a, a, a lot of guys. I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I started with Dave Winfield in San Diego and George Hendrick. Uh, coming over here to St. Louis, George was over here in St. Louis as well. And then I was uh, I had fortune playing with Jim Cott, Gene Tennis, Gaylord Perry, uh, people who have won before, uh, Keith Hernandez, who was by far the best first baseman I ever had a chance to play with, and Tommy Hur at second base, and Oberfell, and then 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 Terry Pendleton. Um, you know, there were so many people that had great work ethics. And when you can get a team of guys who have a great work ethic and are willing to do or make the sacrifice to, to sacrifices that are needed to help the team win, you know, that makes for great chemistry and, and makes for teams that have a chance to win. And we were very fortunate here in the 80s to have a, a group of guys who were willing to make the sacrifice to, for the betterment of the team. Ozzy Smith, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. This this was a lot of fun. And what we do each and every Boone podcast is at the end of the podcast is we bring in the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan? Thanks, Brett. Ozzy, how are you? All right, Dan. How are you? All right. I'm doing well. This question comes from Jimmy in St. Pete. Ozzy, what was your favorite place to play on the road? Uh, favorite place to play on the road. I, I enjoyed going to Montreal. I mean, it was a hassle sometimes going through customs and stuff, but, uh, I enjoyed playing in Montreal. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. So getting back to play in Los Angeles would probably be my second and my third choice would probably be, uh, um, San Diego, you know, San Diego was a nice place to play too, because the weather was always great. And another one comes from Pam in Los Angeles, and she wants to know the origin story of the Wizard of Oz. Well, you know, in baseball, we always we always have nicknames. And so my name is Oz, so most of my friends call me Oz. And so when you couple that with the type of plays that I made, diving and flipping and all of that stuff, I think that's where the magic of Oz came from. And the last question from Dan in Chicago, can you still land a backflip? Not intentionally. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, sir. Well done. All right. Ozzy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate it, sir. All right. Okay, Dan, thank you guys so much for having me, Brett. You guys uh, have a great day, and I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Ozzy. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? Is that mailbag time? I'm not sure. Mailbag time. All right, Booner. This question is for you. Best nickname in all of sports. We have the Wizard of Oz. What's another great nickname that you love the most? The best. Um, 
Man, there's so many good ones. Uh, I had so many teammates that had. Uh, I think I'll, I'll just keep it simple. Junior. Junior. It's just every, there's not too many. But there's so many juniors out there. There's Fernando Tatis Jr. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But there's one guy that comes up when you just simply say junior. And that's Ken Griffey Jr. I was always a little more partial to the guy they called the fridge. But sure, the junior works too. The junior works too. Well, I'm a little biased, you know. I'm a little biased. with the. We're going to stick to baseball. All right. And that's going to do it for the Brett Moon Podcast for today, buddy. Did you, did you enjoy? Was Ozzy one of your favorites? Ozzy was a great player. Yeah. I only got to put, well, I played against him for four or five years, but one of the greatest to ever do it. And like I said, reinvented, uh, reinvented the shortstop position. That he did. All right, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boone Podcast. That's all Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, pretty please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Moon Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one.